We're starting off the series talking about suicide. I had the perception that, like, the people around me, they didn't want me in their life. The number one killer of Australian men aged 15 to 45. I just thought I was a hindrance on any, everyone's lives. Men die by suicide at three times the rate of women. An average of six choose to end their lives every day and in the past decade, the numbers have only been increasing. This issue is a big part of the motivation for the whole show, which covers many of the topics contributing to overall mental health. On this episode, Taylor Johnstone tells his inspiring story. It makes me realize that I was so naive. I think it's important to learn the signs. He's a 21-year-old who fought his way back from being suicidal to become a youth mental health leader himself with a passion for helping others who were struggling. I think going to the brink was where it was shown the most. This episode is dedicated to my friend Jamo Exendaris, who died by suicide in February this year. If conversations like this can help save even one life, then it's all worth it. If anyone listening to this podcast is thinking about suicide, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or your local crisis hotline. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast about young men's health sponsored by the Freemasons Foundation Centre for Men's Health. My name's Callum, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. Cool. All right, Taylor, thanks so much for um, giving me your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. No problem. Thank you very much. Tell us about Youth Live for Life. What is that group and, and what do they do? Yeah, so Live for Life is a organization that delivers youth mental health training to students as well as community members in rural Victoria. So we're set up in three different communities at the moment. So one of those is Macedon Rangers, another one is Glenelg Shire in southwest Victoria, and then our last one is Benalla. And basically we look at youth participation. So we've got a crew of young people that are really avid in driving mental health and mental health awareness and yeah, it's just a really good community organisation that's aimed at reducing suicide and improving mental well-being in young people. How do you teach mental health to you know high school students and, and young people? So a big part of that is combining what they want with what um, the research or the evidence says. So a lot of what we do is run by the Mental Health First Aid Australia Whereas we try and bring in elements that the young people themselves tell us. So, for instance, that they thought that like if we could change the names of people that we're talking about to, say, Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference. So, you've got Amy and Jake and Terry. That's the sort of way that they felt they were really engaged. So, we go in four times throughout the school year to teach year eight students And they're all community members, so young community members as well as other um, youth workers, and they go in and provide this training to the kids instead of a normal class. And is that, uh, do you find something that they're very receptive to? Have many of them thought much about it before or had those sorts of conversations before, or is it really, does it seem like it's the first time that they're learning about these things? I think it's, for some of them, it's definitely the first time, whereas there's others that have been exposed to it before and are really open to it and really engaged in the topic. And we do have our crew. So once the students have finished the their training in year eight, they can go on in year nine or 10 to be part of our crew member and help shape 
the program, I suppose, and lead our delivery. So I think a lot of those members that are that do become in the crew are really affected by mental ill health. But so yeah, I'd definitely say a lot too. And talk about your own history of mental illness. When did that begin? Yeah, so growing up, it probably started peaking around age 13, 14, I'd say. In high school, I just noticed myself sort of slipping into a feeling of loneliness and a feeling of isolation. And although I was like quite happy outside, I'd get home and I'd cry myself to sleep or get to a point where I just didn't know what to do. So... Around 12... Where was that coming from? Like, did you have good relationships or what was leading to those thought patterns? Um, I'm not sure. Like, I had a pretty good relationship with all my family. I've got a twin brother as well and was able to get along with him really well. I think just at school, I felt like I had a lot of friends but nothing really super close. And I think a big part of it as well, like towards when I got to about 15, 16, I was trying out for high levels of footy and just wasn't able to get there and injuries and sort of all these setbacks sort of hit me really hard and yeah I think that sort of compounded that as well and led me into a state where I was really down really depressed and then got to a point of suicidality. So were you putting a lot of pressure on yourself to be something in particular is that? I think so yeah. Is that what it was? That's spot on I think I was really trying to be amazing or be flawless I suppose and that's something that's not attainable and I didn't realize that at 14 or 15. And what was pushing you to think that you know that was something that you had to achieve or that was even possible at such a young age why were you you know such a perfectionist? Gee I'm I'm not really sure. Because most most young people and people of all ages but certainly 15 14 year old boys they're not they're not perfect (laughs) i don't know like i'd done a lot of things and i was always decent at them so like i got in primary school and high school i was always up near the top of the grades and i was always one of the best at sports or like one of the best at everything and i'd always put that pressure on myself to be one of the best if not the best in any class or anything that i did um i was part of like a youth council in the region, I participated in all different types of volunteering. I just sort of like loaded myself up to a, a crazy level, I'd say. And were you trying to push yourself to the limit or were you trying to fill some sort of hole or what was driving that? I think there was part of me that was wanting to do all these things because I found them enjoyable and or I originally found them enjoyable and then once they got like I just stuck with them even if they weren't anymore. How did uh, those sort of thoughts and feelings that you were having that was so dark, how did that manifest? Did you not have much energy? What sort of things happened to you physically and mentally when you were in that state? Yeah, definitely. So once I got, I suppose, to that really depressed stage, I was really lethargic. Like I was just exhausted all the time and tired and I couldn't sleep. Um, I probably would have had five hours of sleep a night I got irritable a lot as well towards my family but like towards others like at school no one would have picked that but it sounds like you had a lot of things going for you in your life you know you're very active you're successful at what you're doing you had 
loving family and friends, you know, all the things that people would think on paper your life should be more or less perfect, yet you were feeling this way. I guess that sort of just goes to show that what's on the outside isn't necessarily really a uh, reflection of what's on the inside and that, you know, anyone can be affected by this no matter what their life looks like. Yeah, exactly. That's spot on. Like you hear about so many celebrities or so many um, comedians that have ha- that seem to have the perfect life or seem to be so happy, but on the inside they've led to a life of depression or in the end suicide as well. Did you have examinations? Like did you get uh, go to the doctor or find anything out about the chemicals in your brain to know if this was like a biological problem? I know my twin brother as well had some issues with depression and suicide, but I went to the doctors. I was put on the same sort of medication that he was, and that was about it for me at that stage. And that just led me to really a path of being numb and sort of no sense of feeling. What was that medication? Uh, I think it was Pristique. And so what did that do? That just numbed you out? Yeah, pretty much. It just made everything not as vivid. Um, my enjoyment for things not as much, but also the lows not as much. And this was when you were around 13, 14 still? So this, I was put on medication, I reckon, around 16. Okay. So you'd been feeling sort of this way since about 13 and then you had years there when it where it slowly progressed. Can yeah. you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So it sort of slowly progressed and from being a lot of a sense of low, it became a bit more to that sense of I need to escape or I wanted to change my life or start it up, start escape basically. So I felt myself with two options. One was to run away to Melbourne or run away from home and the other one was suicide. And this was around that sort of 15, 16 year age mark. I had the perception that like the people around me, they didn't want me in their life. And it's something that I know now, looking back, that that's totally not true. However, then, I just thought I was a hindrance on any everyone's lives. Why did you think that? What was going on that, that led you to think that way? I don't think it was anything major. I think it was my mindset. I was in the thought pattern or had these thoughts that got, went through my head and that said that you're worthless or that said that you're useless. useless. Or I would overanalyze if I made a mistake when I was talking to friends I would think that like I would over exaggerate and think that they might be hating me or thinking that I was useless or an idiot Um, when to be fair they were probably only worried about themselves or worried about the conversation that was at hand rather than what I made myself look like so you were just super judgmental of yourself and hyper analyzing everything you did like you were sort of looking for evidence that you were worthless or not good enough yeah that's spot on and do you think that was sort of was that feeding that sort of negative ego or identity Um, perhaps unconsciously you were wanting to create more of a, a narrative that that was your reality even though it was something that you didn't want maybe maybe that's what spurred that on or Maybe that's why I took up so many activities to try and distract myself from that. 
but I think they sort of combined as well definitely to that state of depression, that state of suicidality. And when did it go from depression to having suicidal thoughts? I couldn't really say a time exactly, but I know noticed at times probably around 15 or 16, I would be crying myself to sleep and I couldn't see an option. And I can remember making plans um, to end my life as well. And I think around 16, probably about nine months before I went and got help, I started really fleshing out these plans. And I think I was stopped by realizing that my brother was going to be the first one that would see. And I suppose the second sort of thought was that I could make it out of it and I could make it out of this sort of scenario. I could grow and do something with my life and be able to show people that even if you are living with this pain or this hurt or this suicidality, it can get better. I definitely fluctuated. There'd be days where you wouldn't think about it, days where I thought I was on top of the world, was having a great time. But then it would generally come at night for me. It generally come when I was alone because that's like it was just mine. Like it was only my story. It wasn't anyone else's. No one else knew about it. So that's when it had come. What was it like inside your head at that time? What sort of things... Were you saying to yourself or what did you hear in your head? Uh, You're not good enough. Just go away. You're worthless. Things like that. Did you feel like it was you who was saying those things or was it? did it feel like it was something else? No, I thought it was me. I thought it was a combination of me hearing the voices of everyone else, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it was sort of my imagination of what everyone else would be saying. But they probably, in reality, they weren't saying that. Exactly. So I think perhaps um, having such intense thoughts like that and keeping them to yourself for so long, they get the opportunity to have a, a domino effect of sorts where they can really build because you're not allowing anyone else the opportunity to disprove them or break them down they're just able to grow in your mind is that how you felt yeah and it really did it really just festered the thoughts just became more menacing and more scary and more worrying because there was no input from someone else i suppose why why didn't why didn't you share it well i didn't want to share it with my family because like my brother had been going through the same sort of stuff about six months earlier and I thought they were still dealing with that. They wouldn't be able to deal with me as well. I didn't feel like I had anyone at school that was close enough to tell. And I thought it would just be a hindrance if I did. Were there signs that other people would have been able to see? I think so. I think there's things around me being irritable. Just staying away from others as well at times but I think a lot of it me like I think I hit it pretty well and there probably wasn't a lot of signs and in your experience with 
young people you work with and other stories you've heard, is that generally the case that most people are keeping this to themselves and they're not necessarily making cries for help, especially men? In part, yes. A lot of the young people that I'm working with are a bit more open to that though. I think there'll still be a lot that aren't. However, I think we're at a stage now where we're a lot more comfortable with saying and I know it was only five or five years ago I think when it was for me but I think there's been a massive change in the in mental health and society's attitude towards it and I think that's been a major thing for the young people in Australia and in the world in fact that this has become more normal and it's become more clear and more acceptable to be not okay. And what is what does talking about it and admitting that you're not okay, what is the power of that? It gives you the power to like have other people help you. And it's such a strong position for someone to say that, yeah, I'm not okay because it means that you've looked into yourself and understood yourself and said that you're not happy with what's going on. And I think it's so powerful if you're able to do that. What do you think are the, the common things that lead people to be suicidal? Is, it, is there commonality there or are there very different things, do you think? I mean, I can really only speak from a limited viewpoint, I'd say. But I think stress has been a major thing associated with it as well as social isolation so whether that's perceived or whether that's actual the sense of isolation when that's combined with stress um, whether that's stress over being perfectionist or whether it's stress over um, someone's life and financial issues or anything like that I think when they're combined they're a major risk factor so were you really isolating yourself when this was manifesting in your mind oh i think so i think that i definitely isolated my internal being away from everyone else so there was sort of two aspects of me there was a sense where a lot of people knew where i was bubbly and happy and active and eager to chat and that was all about superficial things and it was fine but then there was that internal aspect that i which i think was me which was isolated because it didn't get any airtime. Did you have less and less interaction with people at that time? I, I know I didn't really go to friends' places or anything like that. I was pretty quick to leave footy and I sort of like isolated myself in the gym work that I was doing or the studies I was doing. So, yeah, I suppose. Feeling alone, perhaps like totally alone and more than anything else is makes people feel trapped and like there's no way out because it's almost like you go into a bubble that you can't break out of and there's no one else there to break you out of it is that how you felt yeah i suppose like that bubble analogy is really good and you sort of become caught up in all those problems that are inside the bubble that you don't see that it's just a tiny bubble in the scheme of the world and like all your problems are so small when you consider the entire world. 
But when you're unable to step back from that, it just seems overwhelming and like there's nothing else on the yeah, outside. Yeah, definitely because that's the bubble and that's your world at the moment. So what do you do to break out of that and, and step back? I think you just got to let someone into your bubble. I think you've got to open that up to allow whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, whether it's a counsellor, whatever it is, you need to let someone into the bubble because they can dispel some of those thoughts that are bouncing around and they can help reassure you and make you feel a bit better. Do you think that that suicidal mindset wants to stop you from doing that? I think so. I think in cases it can, yeah. I think for me it definitely did. It took a big shock for me to realize that I actually needed to talk and let someone into my bubble. How seamlessly did you break out of that mentality? I don't think it was that seamlessly. I remember that day quite vividly, but there was probably a greater turning point. Um, It was probably, yeah, the day or two before I actually went and got help. I... We actually had a boy that I'd played cricket with who passed away via suicide. And I can remember hearing it in English class. And our teacher wasn't there because he was like in a staff meeting dealing with that. And I can remember just breaking down. I took off and like out out of the room found a spot and just broke down in tears for 40 minutes, I think. Did you think of yourself in in their shoes at that time and think about how your own family would have reacted? Part of that, yeah. I think there was a bit of grief for him. There was a lot in seeing my brother as it could have been him. And then there was me and realizing it really really could have been me yeah my a close friend of mine died by suicide earlier this year and seeing the effect that that had on his family and his circle and just the level of devastation you know to the point where his mom can't walk at the funeral and is just completely destroyed by the level of loss to witness that you know you think if that person had seen the pain that they'll cause by taking that action I just don't believe that they would have done it but I can't pretend to understand where you're at in that moment where you're gearing up to take your own life It's just not there. Like the thing that stopped me was worrying about what my family would think when I got there, but it could be so easy that that wouldn't have been present and I would have gone through with it. And I suppose in your friend's case and in so many other people's case, they don't don't see those things or that doesn't pop up or they truly believe or those thoughts make them believe that they don't need to be there or that no one will have that like crippling grief. Yeah. Well, in, in my 
in my friend's case, like I know he, he had um, extremely strong love for his mom and his family and his friends. Um, but I genuinely believe that he spiraled to a point where he must have been thinking that for whatever reason he'd come up with in his mind that had been allowed to build that the world would be better off and his mum and everyone else would be better off without him. And that's all I can think is that that must have just really sunk its teeth into his thinking and grown to a point where, you know, he felt like he had to do that. From what you said, that resonates to me. And that's probably a thought process like not a uh not a you know no one loves me thing but a i am not going to bring to this world what i need to and i'm a burden and you know if anything i'm bringing down the people that i care about yeah which is totally not true but when you're isolated and all you're doing is thinking that with no one to pull you out of it it becomes I can imagine it becomes true to you. It definitely does. And it becomes a part of everything in your life. So did, what, what fundamentally shifted in your mind um, that steered you away from being suicidal and being depressed? The day after the suicide of that boy from my hometown, there was a talk by the school on driving and safe driving and I can remember the presenter got to the point where he was like don't like if you're ever tired or if you're ever consumed substances please don't do this like please don't because his daughter had passed away um, in an accident and like you could see the grief on his face and you'd see how much it hurt him. And I think that's when I realized that the people around me would care. And I think that broke through to me. That there would be many people around me that care. And I think that's what caused me to jump out of that because of that finally pervaded into my bubble enough to sort of push some of those other thoughts to the background. And the next day I went, uh, booked into our counsellor at school and, yeah, started, I don't know, talking, talking about my thoughts and what was happening and letting someone into that bubble. And what was that like to talk about it finally after holding on to it for years? It was hard at first. It was not something I really imagined doing, but it was so cathartic and it helped me so much and it's something that I've noticed every time I've talked about my story it's been cathartic and it's helped me heal it's helped me grow and understand it more and like even chatting with you today as well there's elements where I've understood myself and understood my teenage self a bit more from this conversation how quickly was that weight lifted quite slowly I think were you breaking down to begin with from that first session? Were you in tears or was it? did it take longer than that? Um, no, I was in tears. I was in tears that first session. I felt like I was throwing every part of myself out to this other person. 
And that was something that was so foreign to me. And what was left underneath that? I don't know, nothing. Did a did a new person start to rise from that though? Or what was that like? I suppose in my case it was hard. Like, yes, started to rise and there was roots. Um, and there was already probably roots of myself as well that were there and that had just started to like and they grow. But I don't think it happened straight away. And as I said, like with the medication I was on, I felt a bit numb and I felt like I wasn't myself still. What did you have to do to stay on track and make sure that you didn't, you know, fall back into where you were? Yeah, so I think probably when I've moved up to Melbourne is probably the best way that I can talk to this. Um, I found that I had to keep seeing counsellors or keep seeing therapists or psychologists, need to make sure that there was time for myself, whether that's just breathing, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's just sitting down with a book. And I also knew that I had to have some sort of social time as well because for me, when I was isolating myself from others, at the time I thought it was helping. But in reality, it was so detrimental to my mental well-being. So making sure that I've got that combination of activity, um, the social sort of settings and that time for myself and time to let me sort of be has been so pivotal to my well-being. Did you stop getting counselling or is that something that you still do? I still do, yeah. I've seen a psychologist in Melbourne probably for the last six months since I got a mental health plan. I got a new one just as I was going through stresses with uni and dipping into probably that depressed state again. Do you feel like you've learned to love yourself? Yeah, definitely. And learn to understand myself and who I am a bit more. Yeah, I think a big part of that comes down to my girlfriend at the moment. She's really helped me eradicate those voices and whenever I've had them has just told me, Taylor, they're bullshit. Or Taylor, like, don't listen to those. Like, I think you're fantastic. There's so many people that think you are fantastic or amazing. And it just really makes sure that those voices don't have too much power. I suppose for that to be long-lasting, though, her voice has to become your voice in your own head too. Like, you have to believe yourself what other people are saying. Yeah, and I think that's a major part of the shift as well. Like it's, I feel myself fully believing that now and I fully believe that what I'm doing is fine, like is good and I'm happy with myself and who I am and I don't have to be going and trying these extra things or doing these extra things because I'm content with who I am. What does it make you think now when you reflect on that place you were in? It makes me realize that I was so naive I feel like I still am in some aspects. I'm only 21 and but still I've seen so much growth and so much change since then. I know I was alone and isolated and scared. I thought I had it all worked out. Well, I thought I, I was actually the only person that had ever experienced that. Like I knew that there was other people that were suicidal but I I never thought anyone was me or like had experience or could relate to me. And I think now I understand that a lot of people, while they aren't you or why they 
haven't had the exact experience that you have had, they can understand you and they can listen to you and help you and help you grow and help you understand yourself and help you realize that life's all right. And you're by no means alone. We know from uh, the latest figures that six men die by suicide every day and there's over 80 calls to paramedics for suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts by men every day, which is a part of the reason that um, we're doing this podcast. What do you think when you hear those numbers and you know that there's that many people experiencing that same level of pain that almost was the end of you? It's scary because... Like I realize and I understand how much it gripped me and it really struck me and I could see how for every person that took their own life, there was a community around that was heartbroken and devastated and the actual impact that it has is just massive. Like it takes on that person's mind and it, it takes up their whole world for so much. And then it takes up the people around them once it's occurred. If you'd suicided, what would you have missed out on? So much. I Like in those five years, I've done exchange in France. I've made some incredible friends up here at uni in Melbourne. I've understood that life's much bigger. I've explored like Thailand and parts of Australia, all around Australia. I've had a girlfriend that honestly is amazing and is not something that I would have experienced or even believed possible. I've missed actually, I would have missed having some real joy and real happiness in some of the things that I'm doing with some of my friends as well. And I really would have, like I also would have missed helping other young people and communicating with other young people that are like-minded and really want to improve youth mental health in Australia. And so for those reasons and for so many more reasons, I'm so happy that I didn't. If someone had have shown me where I was or like where I was, where I am today, I think that might have swayed me to stay as well. I think there was other aspects that were probably more important, but I think that definitely would have. And so how has going through all of this experience motivated you to do what you do now and do the study that you're doing and the work that you're doing? Well, a big part of the work that I'm doing is around, like, is obviously motivated by that because I don't want anyone to be suffering in silence for so long the way that I did. So I think it's so cruel and it was it was a horrible experience. And it's young people that are being hit by this. I mean, people might think that it doesn't happen till we're older, but suicide is the biggest killer of men between the age of 15 and 45 and that was the age uh, around about you were when yeah. you were at this stage. So... How key is it to get to young people, you know, at this time before 
things can get worse. It's so pivotal. Like if we're able to educate young people that they can talk and help them and show them how to do it, then we can really emphasize that mental well-being is so necessary to your own well-being and every aspect of your life. And like if a young person doesn't have the skills or doesn't understand the signs that are coming out of it, then they're probably going to get to a state like I was at or like so many other people are at. And if they're able to recognize some of the signs in themselves or in others, they can get some help or they can get assistance and then they can not spend years or lose their life because of these intrusive thoughts. What do you say to young people who are struggling now when you come across them? What sort of advice do you give them? I think I like to listen to them. I like to hear what they have to say and I like to reassure them. Like things can seem scary and I can understand why it's scary or I can understand why it's all so much. But if you're able to share it with someone and if you're able to talk to someone that has some skills or knowledge in this area, it will really help you. And just from talking to you about it, can you see it, even that helps? I think it helps for the moment or it helps for a bit of time. And like there's so many people from our program at Youth Live for Life that have experienced chatting with me or with someone else and then have gone to their counsellor or to their family members or to a friend and have had a conversation about their own well-being. Um, I also think that it's really amazing when young people are able to tell their stories, talk about their own difficulties or their own worries to other young people because if they see someone that's like them able to talk about it, then they realize that they can as well. What can friends and family do? Because, I mean, sometimes they must feel either unaware or they don't know what's going on or they're sort of suffering in silence and like they're kind of helpless. What do you think friends and family can do if they notice that something's off with a loved one? I think a big part of it is making sure there's an environment where the young person or whoever it is, the young man or the man or the woman or the whoever it is, a safe where they... Uh, a space where they feel safe, where you're allowed to talk about things. So I think it's really important to have a place where you're able to communicate about whatever's going on in your life because that means it's easier for you to talk about stuff that's troubling. And I think if family members or friends are able to discuss that, then it makes it so much easier for everyone else to. More broadly, what what can we do to turn these terrible statistics around? I think it's important to learn the signs of mental ill health. So these are things like isolation. These are things like alcohol abuse or substance abuse or people that you want to interact with or you have interacted with if they're drawing away. There's like so many different signs. If you become aware of them, 
you can understand or you can see it in your friends or you can see it in your partner or your brother or whoever. And I think encouraging them to have the conversation. If you see someone, you'd be like, instead of just being or saying, what's wrong with you? Opening it up and say, I'm concerned for you. I noticed that you're not hanging out with us as much as you normally did or saying I've noticed you're disengaging from footy or I'm worried about you because you just seem off. I suppose not underestimating how deep some of those feelings might run or not brushing things off because I think there's a tendency especially when you're an adult that you know everyone's dealing with their own things and everyone has an off day so or that's just how that person is so you perhaps don't pay it as much mind and you think oh you know they'll they'll be fine or or you you don't give it as much credibility as you should i know with my friend i was completely shocked when i found out um, that he died but then when i went back through my mind at the last conversations we had and I thought about the place he was in, isolating him, isolating himself in another state, and you know how driven he was to achieve and succeed at something that he wasn't achieving straight away. It all made sense to me. Well, it didn't all make sense to me, but I, I understood perhaps uh, how he got to that place. But you know, when I was having those those last conversations that I had with him, I never imagined that he was anywhere near that well, that dark. Yeah. And often there's a layer of dark, I suppose, that's beyond and that you don't see. And if you're worried, just ask. Like, yeah, you may be wrong and they may just be having an off day, but there's a chance that they're not and there's a chance that there's something wrong. And I think it's so important that you just ask. And even if they say that they're all right, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But like they might open up. And even if it's not to you, if you've started that conversation or even shared a bit of your own feelings, then I think that will encourage them and they might share it with someone else and while people can be can be a shoulder for whoever it is to cry on or just an an ear lend uh, lend an ear to someone or, or be there for whoever it is i think it's also important for people who've been struck by the tragedy of suicide to accept that it's not on them at the end of the day. It's not on anyone else. And they, you know, the people who are, are gone are gone and everyone else has to live with it. But we can't blame ourselves and torture ourselves thinking about what we could have done differently. Definitely. Like you can't take the blame on yourselves. Like everyone's going to wonder what could have I done like you you can't take that on yourself and you can't because even if you had have done everything 
than they still might have passed away. They're gone and you're the one living with it. You know, they're not they're not the ones that are in pain anymore. It's everyone else. I think so. Left behind. I think so. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for sharing your story today. It was really powerful and very uh, interesting to hear from you and everything that you've been through and inspiring to hear where you've managed to get to now. And I hope a lot of other people listening to this can take from that that there is light at the end of the tunnel and it can all turn around fairly quickly if they can just stay the course. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Callum. Um, And yeah, definitely, if you just stay the core, find some way to get help or someone to talk to, then things can definitely change around. Seems like the number one thing is talk about it. You know, don't allow yourself to be totally isolated. You don't have to do it alone. And in fact, if you do do it alone, that's when it's really dangerous. Exactly. If you got something out of this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. Also, guys, it's really important that we're part of the conversation about our health and well-being, and it's easy to do. Just Google Freemasons Foundation Center for Men's Health and click on the Men's Health Register to sign up and help out with much-needed surveys and studies that make us all better off. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Young Blood Podcast community Facebook group and follow Young Blood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email youngbloodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com. This podcast was produced by the talented Rory Noak at Podbooth. You can check them out at podbooth.com.au. This is Young Blood. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.